Amen. God is at work. I can tell you there are a number of ways, even in this service, that, you know, I worked along with others in putting this service together, but there are still connections and things in the lyrics of the songs that I didn't anticipate, and I I just love it when that happens. I just, uh, it's not always planned, but the Lord is just speaking to us through his word and through these songs and through these prayers, and uh, so it's great to be here with you. I'm thankful for this day of worship. My name is Carl Durley. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and this is, as you heard before, the second Sunday of Advent. And the uh, sermon series that we're in is being shared by the pastors of the church as we uh, build up with this anticipation of Christmas. See, at Christmas, we are celebrating the most incredible, mysterious, historic miracle that has ever happened in this world, and it is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God, the eternal triune God, that a person, a distinct person of that triune God would take on human flesh and become fully man and fully God simultaneously. This is a miracle that is just mind-boggling. And that's why we can spend our whole lives contemplating it and never reach the end of the wonder. The eternal person of Jesus taking on flesh. So that's really what Christmas is all about, is turning our attention to him. So let's, let's start this, uh, this sermon with turning our attention to him in prayer. Would you join me, please? Lord God, we, we put our hope in you and our trust in you and thank you for speaking to us and thank you for your word being so, so clear, but still, Lord, it fills us with wonder. So we need your spirit's help to understand, to understand the truth that comes from you. Please lead us, please teach us as we sit at your feet and listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of this sermon series is Light in the Darkness. And it's clear at Christmas time that light has to do with Christmas. I mean, look around. There are lights everywhere. Almost every Christmas display, even people in our culture who don't know the Lord, they understand that Christmas has to do with lights. Light has to do with Christmas. And we want to look at God's word and see the reason that that's the case, where that idea originated, that Christmas has to do with light, because that's a very biblical idea. Hopefully we can see this from a biblical foundation, and it can impact the way that we we, uh, go through Christmas and the Advent season as we think about the Lord. See, over and over again, Scripture uses the imagery of light when it's talking about Jesus coming into the world. It was in the ancient prophecies that for centuries the prophets would say about Jesus coming. Over and over again, it used light as the image to talk about the coming of Christ. When Jesus was born, there was this glorious light that surrounded them. And and it was an event filled with light in the middle of the night. And then we know that often in the rest of the New Testament, even looking back at the birth of Jesus, talking about Jesus, it talks about him Uh, with reference to light and uses that image of light to tell us what it really means. So light shining in the darkness is something that God has been saying to us of what Christmas is about, and we want to understand that well. So that's what this sermon series is about. So let's start with this question then, what is the light? What is the light? What does the Bible mean by the light in these prophecies and in these texts? If you missed Pastor Stephen's message last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on our website. 
he started with 1 John 1.5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The reason that Christmas is about light is because it starts with God and God is light. So Christmas starts and ends with God. It's all about him. So to understand Christmas, we turn our attention to God and scripture tells us God is light. That's what this message is about. And in him, there is no darkness whatsoever. So in order to dig a little bit deeper into that idea, turn with me, if you would, to the gospel of John, uh, starting in verse one of chapter one, and it will also be on the screen for you to read. Here's the gospel of John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. So this text says that in him, that is in Christ, was life. And that life was the light of men. In him, in Jesus, in the one who was in the presence of the triune Godhead forever, for eternity past. The one who who is the Lord of all before creation. The one who superseded over all things that are created in this world. That one, in him, was life. And that life found in him, found in Christ, was the light of men. The light that began in heaven. The life of God, which has always been, came into the world, shining into the darkness as the light for men. So what is the light? The light is the life found in Christ. Jesus is the life of God made manifest before us in the midst of this creation, this broken world. It's the eternal life of God being revealed to our created world, made available to us. This life originated in God. It was there before time began. And this life found in Christ shines into the darkness and is available for us. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light that we celebrate at Christmas is not just Christmas spirit. It's not just goodness in general. It's not just good feelings of nostalgia and sentimental memories. The light that we speak about at Christmas is the eternal life of God found in Jesus Christ. And it was made manifest to the world. This is what the light is. Which these passages are talking about. It's the life found in Christ. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light is used as the image because this life that is found in Christ behaves just like light does. It shines. 
It permeates and it chases out the darkness. And more specifically, this message is that God is light, but that doesn't mean that God is just some of the light or that God has some of the light or that God is one option for finding the light. He's not just a good example of the light. He's not just one possible source while there are other sources out there. No. God is the only source of the light. He is the originator of life. It's where it began in his presence in him. The life found in Christ is the only life that has been made available to us. It's the only one that has been made manifest to us from the originator of life himself. In verse 9 of John chapter 1, it says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. First of all, he calls it the true light because there are imitations that are not the same. There is only one true light. And this is the life found in Christ. And it also says that he was coming into the world. That is, he was outside of this world, outside of this natural world and this creation. And the reason was, it had to be. Because all of this creation was under the curse of sin and death. And death reigned without him. There was no eternal life apart from him. And so it had to come to us from outside of us. And outside of the natural world is the supernatural presence of God. And it had to come to us because we did not have it. Not a single person had it. Not a single animal had it. Nowhere in this world was there eternal life. It was found in the presence of God, the originator of life. It was in Christ and revealed to us. He is the only source of light. This life can't be found anywhere else in this natural world. It had to come from outside. Christ is the only source of eternal, enduring, everlasting life. I'd like to relate this with you to the Old Testament. And I hope by the end you'll see where I'm going with this. In the Old Testament, God established the only way that his people could rightfully worship him. God set up all the rules. We can go back to the Old Testament and read through this system of worship that God had established for his covenant people. And this system was a complex system of many, many sacrifices, many of them animal sacrifices. And sometimes these sacrifices would be burned up entirely in fire. Sometimes they would, they would have a feast. They would sacrifice the animals and then feast together um, with that animal as, as the dish. There are many different kinds of sacrifices. It's a complex system, and I can't get into all that, and I don't even understand all of that anyway. But there before the Lord in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, there would have been hundreds upon thousands of animals sacrificed in the worship of God through the years. And I'm not trying to be gross, but there would have been blood everywhere from this system of worship. They would have to collect the blood from these animals in a particular way. And they would have a lot of rules from God of what they were supposed to do with that blood. And a lot of the blood was used in setting things apart as holy to God. 
They would have to set apart the utensils that were used in worship by sprinkling blood on them and setting them apart as holy for God. They would take the holy places, such as the tabernacle and the altar and and those things, and they would sprinkle blood on those things because they were set apart as holy to God. They would even set apart the holy priests, and they would sprinkle them with blood too. It says Aaron and his sons to sprinkle blood on them all over their clothing. There was this practice where they were told to take some blood and dip it on the right earlobe and the right big toe of the priests. I mean, these practices seem strange to us, but in all of it, God was teaching us. He was teaching them about something very important. With all of this this blood, it was reminding them that sin brings death. That this separation that we have between God and us is a separation of life and death. And the tendency for us is to take sin more lightly than we should. And God gave them a system of worship that kept them from doing that. Because again and again, these sacrifices would be made and they they would be reminded that sin brings death. And they were separated from a holy God. Through all of these rituals, God was reminding them over and over. Not only this, but God also was teaching them that there was no ultimate reconciliation with God apart from death. Just the fact that this had to be repeated over and over and over again, year after year, taught them that that sin brings death and death really is is how you, uh, you have to acknowledge that before worshiping God. But the fact that it went on and on and on taught them this is imperfect. No final um, reconciliation has has been made available yet. The principle taught in scripture is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this was the system of worshiping God for so many years. However, in all of that system, not once, not ever, were they ever commanded to drink blood. In fact, they were strictly forbidden from drinking blood. Now, there would have been pagan, pagan um, religions, false religions at that time that did worship their deities through the drinking of blood. So it wasn't unheard of. But God forbade them from drinking blood, even though worshiping him involved a lot of blood. So why is that? In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is God speaking to his people. The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you. Verse 14, that same chapter, he says, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is in its blood. It was forbidden for the Israelites to drink blood as part of their worship of God, even though it involved a lot of blood of animals. Why? Because the life of that flesh, the life of that animal was its blood. It was considered to be In the blood, the blood was its life. And God gave them a system of worship that taught them 
Yes, sin brings death, but you need something beyond what you can find in this natural world. They did not need the life of animals. They did not need the life of those animals or of anyone else. What they needed was more than just life in general. What they needed was something different, a different kind of life, an eternal, everlasting life that could not be found anywhere else. Because all of this natural world was under a curse, a curse of sin and death. They did not just need life in general. What they needed was outside of the natural world. They needed eternal life, and that was not available to them anywhere. So imagine this. Just think. Jesus comes along, this Jewish rabbi, Jewish teacher, and he gathers with his Jewish disciples, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I can't imagine how shocking that would have been to his disciples. What are you talking about, Jesus? We had been commanded in hundreds of years of worship to never drink blood. And here, it's not just talking about the blood of an animal, the blood of a human being. This is, this is utterly shocking. When Jesus gathered with his, with his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Never, ever, ever had God commanded the drinking of blood, much less the blood of a human being. I can't imagine how confused they would be at first. But he was teaching them something more important. You need something that you don't have. You need something that you can't find anywhere else. You need something you can't find anywhere in this natural world. You need the life of God. You need the eternal, everlasting life of God. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. See, where does human life come from in this world to begin with? God formed the dust into Adam and he formed Eve out of the rib of Adam, but it says that God breathed life into them. God was the source of their life to begin with. But when sin and death entered this world, that life turned to death. Some think that there's a divine spark in every human being. Based on scripture, that is false. The divine spark, the, the spark of life that was in Adam and Eve was extinguished. And in all of us, our condition before God is spiritually dead on our own. This life that we need is found in the presence of God, but it's no longer here on this earth apart from him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what Jesus was teaching his disciples in these shocking words of uh, drink my blood. He was not teaching them that they needed his physical blood. This was not the point. He was not teaching them the doctrine of transubstantiation, which came centuries later. That wasn't the point. He di they didn't need his physical blood. They needed the life that was in the blood of Christ. And there was nowhere else they could find it. They needed the life of God in Christ. 
the life of Christ found through his blood. So when we take communion, we are acknowledging that we have found eternal life in Jesus Christ, supernatural life, and we couldn't find it anywhere else. The life of Christ was found in the blood of Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when first John, or excuse me, so when John chapter one, verse five says, the light shines in the darkness, what it means is that the life found in Christ came into this world and shines into this dark and dead world, made manifest and revealed to us. That is the light from God. So one big question I want to I want to talk with you about for the rest of this time is how does darkness respond to the light? How does darkness respond to the light? We're going to turn to John chapter three, verse 16. We'll start there and read John three, 16 through 21 to see how darkness responds to the light of God found in Jesus Christ. This passage starts off with a very familiar verse, John three sixteen. But listen as we read further after this to see the response of the darkness. It says in verse 16 of John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, in order that the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So let's contemplate for a minute. How does darkness respond to light? Scripture says darkness doesn't overcome light. It doesn't comprehend light. Darkness really opposes the light. It stands in opposition to the light. Darkness and light don't peacefully coexist. If you have light, then you no longer have darkness. Darkness is in opposition to the light. Darkness is a rejection of the light. And this passage talks about the people who live in darkness and live according to darkness. And it says that those who live in darkness, who do works of evil, they reject the light because they hate the light. Think about what that means. If the light is the life of of God found in Christ, it says those who walk in darkness hate that. They hate the life found in Christ. They hate the light. 
They love the darkness. In fact, they prefer to stay in the darkness. Thank you very much. We prefer to remain in the darkness than to receive the light. They prefer that. They prefer the darkness over the life of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Stephen put up this slide as a part of his message, showing the three characteristics of God the light. And those who love the darkness, they hate all of that. They hate how light permeates. They hate how light illuminates. They hate how it exposes their deeds. Those who love the darkness hate the way that light overcomes the darkness. Because they love the darkness. They hate the moral purity and the goodness of God. They would prefer to reject the goodness of God in order to remain in the darkness. Those who live in darkness hate the light because ultimately they hate God. Because God is light. They hate the life of God found in Jesus Christ and so they reject the light. But understand this. I know I'm talking about them, this other group out there, but understand this. This is the condition of any human heart apart from the rebirth that comes through Jesus Christ. It's the condition that we all find ourselves in apart from him and his work. On our own, we would prefer the darkness to the light too. On our own, we don't want our deeds to be exposed. Who wants that? On our own, we don't want the light to transform us and change us. On our own, we would reject the life of God found in Jesus Christ too. Because on our own, we hate the light too. But this passage is speaking about two different groups of people. Two different responses to the light. Two different results found in, just in this little passage. Verse 18 refers to those who believe as well as those who don't believe. It talks about those who stand condemned as well as those whom the Son of God would not condemn. It talks about those who live in darkness and those who step into the light. It talks about those whose works are evil and those who does what is true. So this passage is talking about two different groups of people. And we know that that second group is who they are because of a work of God. Like at the end of that passage, it says they step into the light to show that it was God who was working in them to begin with. Those who live in darkness reject the light because they hate the light. But those who believe, whose lives are filled with light, they step into the light deliberately because that's the life of Jesus Christ. And by a work of God, they love the light and they love Christ. They love God himself. There are two different groups and two different responses to the light. So maybe we can think about this question. What happens when the light shines in your life? Just think to yourself, what happens when the light shines in your life? Well, I would say it depends on who you are. In this passage, there are some who reject the light because they hate it. It also talks about those who step into the light because they love the Lord and the light. 
If you are one who believes in Jesus, the light will illuminate your life, transform your life, and you step towards him. But if you don't believe and your deeds are evil, it might make you run the other way or try to hide from the light. I'm going to try to use an illustration, and I'll find out later if this was a good idea. Um, Let's just imagine, just imagine with me that we had a rule here at fellowship that you are, and this is not the rule, but imagine that we had the rule, you are not allowed to bring coffee in the worship center. You remember? Okay. Now I know there's cup holders everywhere and sometimes I have a coffee, but let's just say that was the rule. Okay. And we, we had some people, you know, watching, guarding the doors and being strict about it, you know? So if that were the rule, but you came in one morning and you weren't done with your coffee and you just really wanted to have it with you and the service had started and the lights were dim and you thought, I'm just going to slip in here. Nobody will notice and I'll just sit down and listen. Maybe you don't even have a lid on it. I mean, just to really push the limits. So you're sitting there and you're kind of hoping that uh, nobody notices that you're breaking this rule. Um, How do you feel about the light? Ross, could I ask you to put the house lights on full? Okay. How do you feel about your secret right now? How do you feel about the light? It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? I was trying to kind of... Okay, you can put them down, Ross. Thanks. When exposed to the light and you're trying to get away with something, it can make you feel uncomfortable. And there's two responses. One is confession, repentance, and maybe, maybe making that right. The other might be, oh, I'm just going to cover that with my coat. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to not let my deeds be exposed. I'm just going to cover them over because it's uncomfortable. See, how do we respond to the light? That's just a silly illustration. How do we respond to the glorious light of Jesus Christ in our lives? Much brighter than that. If I'm a believer, the light and the life of God is welcome to shine in my life, or that's what it should be. But there are those who choose instead to cover over and to reject the light because their works are evil. This might lead to a question in your mind. Okay, if I'm a believer, though, and the light and life of God are shining in my life, what about my own temptations to do sinful things? I kind of want those to stay hidden. Shouldn't they be gone at this point? does that mean that I'm actually still in darkness? Here's the admonition I would give us from this passage. If you are a believer, if we are believers in Christ and we believe that Jesus is the true light from heaven and we have sin in our lives, we must not respond like the darkness does. We must not respond the way that those who live in darkness do. We must deliberately respond in the opposite way of how the darkness responds. What does the darkness do? They reject the light. They hate the light. They try to keep their deeds concealed from the light. They refuse it. In fact, they would prefer to have their sinful deeds rather than the life of Jesus Christ. What a choice. Why would anyone select a sinful deed over the life of Jesus Christ? So believer, we must not act like they do, like those who reject it. 
Christians, do we do that? Is there a secret part of your life that you prefer to just stay hidden? That shouldn't be the case because that's what, that's how the darkness responds. Adam and Eve's first instinct after they sinned was to try to hide from God. Are there secret things, sins in our lives that we would prefer to just remain in darkness, hidden from God's light? If that's the case, be careful because that's how those who live in darkness act. That means that in that part of your heart, you're acting as if you hate God. I'm not saying you do, but you're acting as if you do. You're acting as if you would prefer the darkness over the light and the life of Jesus Christ. We need to just be honest about that. I need to be honest about that. If I have some secret sin that I prefer to have hidden in that area of my life, I am acting as if I hate God and I would rather reject the life of Christ, the light of Christ than to have it opened up and exposed to him. We just need to own up to this and call it what it is. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. It's the same type of admonition here. It's also on the screen. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. I used to be confused by that because it says to expose them, but it's shameful to speak of them. I hope I can help us understand that. What do you think it means by expose the works of darkness? It's this context here is not talking about being a whistleblower on other people's sins. It's not talking about that in this text. It's talking about you. It's talking about me and how we live and how we walk. It says, don't become a partner with the sons of disobedience. It's talking about your behavior and my behavior. And so what does it mean by expose? It's not talking about bring it to the press and put it online. It's saying expose what is in the darkness To the light. Expose the darkness to Christ. And that's something you can always do. Take that dark corner of your heart and expose it to the light of Christ. Go to him with it. Let him shine his glorious light there. Continuing in verse 13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
See, if you have a problem with sin, if there's an area of your life where sin is the issue, the solution is not to cover it over. The solution is not to just feel bad about it. The, the solution is to repent and to turn to Christ and to take that part of your heart and just put it before the light of Christ and let him shine on you. Be honest with him as you talk to him about it. Lord, here's this area. It's not right, but I'm not going to try to hide it from you. I'm not going to make this the little secret that I never talked to you about in prayer. I'm going to talk to you directly about this and just expose it to the light as you go to Christ. And here's the good news. Light defeats darkness, right? The light defeats the darkness. When the light of Jesus Christ shines, it illuminates and it transforms and it changes. Let Christ shine on you. Every last detail of your heart, let Christ shine on you. The light chases out the darkness. He changes and transforms. I mean, what are those areas of our lives that maybe we have been preferring over the life of Christ, the life found in Christ? What are the, I mean, in those areas, we're kind of like acting like we know better than God or we'd prefer darkness over life. Are there areas, if we were honest with ourselves, we just don't want transformation? It could be some area of some type of sexual immorality. But rather than keep that a secret, take that to Christ and let his perfect character shine on that. Maybe there's hard issues of resentment or unforgiveness. Let Christ shine on that. Gossip or backbiting or slander. Don't let it stay hidden. Expose it to Christ. Let him shine on that. Maybe areas of wasting the resources that God has given you. Just living selfishly, not investing in his kingdom. Maybe areas of self-indulgence and addiction. Ways that you haven't been living as a steward or as a, as a servant of the Lord in his kingdom. Whatever it is, don't let it remain hidden. Expose it to the light. That is Jesus Christ. Maybe even how we feel or act toward those around us, a spouse, family member, secret hatred in our heart toward a brother or sister in the Lord. Don't let that hide. Don't let the darkness stay there. Expose it to the light of Jesus Christ. Believer, we must not act like those who live in darkness. Darkness is death. But Jesus is life and light. If you find yourself with trying to hang on to some sort of darkness in a corner of your heart, if the Holy Spirit is working in, in you and bringing things to mind, here's how I'd encourage you to respond. Number one, go back to the foundation of the gospel and what it is and what it means. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus coming to earth and bringing us eternal life that we did not have on our own. It's about Christ the Lord. Do you believe that Jesus is the light of the world or don't you? Do you believe he's the only source of eternal life or not? 
Is your faith in him as the only begotten son of God, bringing light and life into the world? I'd like to just briefly take a moment with any of you, if perhaps your answer to those things is, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or maybe no. If you don't think that Jesus is the only source of eternal life in this world, I would just challenge you to to answer, where else are you going to find it? He was in heaven before God. He has eternal life. He's the only one who has the eternal, enduring life that we all need. I love how this verse says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. You know, we can say that with confidence because if we are spiritually dead, God resurrects the dead. And he can take somebody who doesn't believe and he can give you a heart to believe. So I'd encourage you, look to what the scriptures are saying about Jesus. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and let Christ shine on you. Not even spiritual death could prevent God from bringing you to life. Put your faith in him and your life will never be the same. But second, if you do believe in Christ and you realize that you've been opposing the light in some corner of your heart, I want to help you realize in a good way that you're in a losing battle. Light defeats darkness every time. Don't try to hide. That's the wrong direction. Don't give up hope either. I know it's difficult. I know we have struggles. I know we feel frustrated with ourselves Sometimes, but don't give in to the enemy who will just try to make a mess of your life, trying to cover it over and oppose the light. That's a losing battle, and he is going to lose that battle. So submit yourself to God and let Christ shine on you instead. See, your answer is found in repentance. It's not found in artificial feelings of self-loathing or guilt. It's not found even in artificial feelings of self-affirmation. Your hope is not found in any of those things. It's found in repentance and letting Christ shine on you. Through honest prayer, just take it to the Lord and expose your heart to him. Be very honest and let the life of God found in Jesus Christ shine on you and flood your heart like a light that fills a dark room. There's no better time to repent of sin than Advent. It's always a good time, right? But look at all these lights around us. Let's let every one of them remind us that God is light, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and it has come into the darkness for us. And that means you. That means your heart Your heart can be a dark place that gets filled with the radiant life of Christ. The light shines in the darkness and floods the house with light. May that be so this Advent and Christmas season for us. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, we 
believe in you. Who believe in what your word says about you. That you were the God, you were God from the beginning. And nothing in this world has been made apart from you uh, proceeding over it, proceeding over it. Lord, we, we turn to you and acknowledge that you are light. You are the life that we need that we can find nowhere else. So not only, Lord, do we respond to you with faith and belief in what your word says, we pray we'd continue in that and persevere in that belief. That when we have struggles with sinfulness and selfishness in our hearts that pull us in the other direction and all the voices of this dark world calling to us, Lord, that we would have ears to hear you and your voice over all of the rest and respond to Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, the light of God in the flesh. Lord, shine on us. We believe that you are the Messiah, the savior of the world. And we thank you, the Lord, that in every challenge that we face in our walk with you, that we can continuously turn back to you and let Christ shine on us, transform us, change us. And I pray you'd help us to deny the darkness, turn toward the light. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.